This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. The media went crazy a few days ago when President Trump said of COVID-19, don't let it dominate you. Of course, the pundits who trashed Trump for being irresponsible for saying that are the same ones who predicted doom and gloom at the nation's schools if students return to normal life in the age of coronavirus. But as my next guest points out, the actual data on COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths among students at 50 of the nation's top colleges show just how off the mark all this has hysteria has been. We're going to check in now with author Dr. Andrew Boston, who is a trained clinician, epidemiologist and clinical trialist. And he's been doing just a great job tracking the numbers on COVID-19 over the last several months. Very grateful for his work. And Andy, great to have you with us again. Uh, thanks for having me on, Janet. You have been compiling a lot of data on COVID-19, as I just mentioned, and you recently reported that despite some 70,000 tests at 50 major universities, there are hardly any hospitalizations and zero deaths. Why is this not being trumpeted across the media right now? This is hugely good news. Well, yeah, a couple couple of caveats. So um, I did I did find uh, two more hospitalizations at the University of Tennessee, um, and that tally brought me uh, up to five. Uh, but it was uh, I, I'm now after um, seventy thousand hospital uh, positive tests that I've that I've compiled, and I'm going to work this weekend uh, expand my searches of university dashboards to see if I can get to a round number of about a hundred thousand positive tests. Uh, I may have to include a lot more universities, but but, but basically, Janet, the, the, the picture is is uh, is very reassuring, and and that's and that's the point. And you know, as as an epidemiologist, but also you know trained internist, um, if if you were to say that you know if, if people are familiar with the Hippocratic oath that you know above all do no harm. If you were to roughly translate that into the field of epidemiology, um, it comports very well with with what President Trump was trying to say and do. It would be uh, above all cause no panic because because epidemics are frightening things, yeah. and it's always been the tradition in epidemiology to to maintain public calm, uh, it, uh, it, it, even for 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 diseases that were frankly much more deadly than than COVID nineteen. Uh, particularly to the to the population at large, uh, COVID nineteen is is a very serious illness uh, in the frail elderly in particular, and perhaps some other subgroups that that we're beginning to understand better. But in terms of the general population, it absolutely is not. Particularly the working age, uh, less than sixty five, and especially the young, uh, college students, being a notable example. Yeah. So if you're if you're only winding up, um, and I looked at fifty very large universities. If you're only winding up uh, hospitalized, and these are these are reversible hospitalizations that that, have, that, that I've been looking at, um, in basically one out of fourteen thousand positive tests, um, this is this is not something to be 
um, uh, that should be the source of all these these very troubling uh, uh, protocols on college campuses, which are really, uh, I find them quite oppressive. I have two kids at, at a state university, and um, uh, it, it, you know, and, and, I, and I know you have kids uh, on campuses too. And yep. it, 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 it's, it's we really have to fight this. And 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 so one of the things that I'm appealing for now, because it, it's kind of all the picture is is, is, is is coming into focus for me at least. Janet, the way they confirm these so-called positives um, is with a test called, uh, it's a long name, reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction, RT-PCR. And what it's basically doing is taking um, a, a, a particular portion of ge- genetic material from, from, the, from the virus uh, it, it's it's called RNA, um, and they're amplifying it. And they take this is what they amplify in those specimens that they get, whether it's saliva or or, or more invasively in the back of your throat, and nose. Um, and what the problem with this test? It's it's a very elegant methodology and everything, but the problem is its sensitivity. So. Typically, they run what are called these cycles, uh, where where they're where they're trying to amplify this this uh, particular piece of the RNA that they're looking for, and they'll run it uh, on a typical apparatus up to forty cycles. The problem is that if if it if it if it becomes positive early, and this is called the cycle threshold, if it becomes positive early, that's a very good marker for high loads of virus. And contagion, and po- and all the possible you know clinical adverse consequences that are associated with that when you're heavily infected. Those people, if they're presenting to the hospital, for example, moving away from the student population, the people with the lower cycle thresholds and the much more um, uh, much more uh, heavy loads of, of virus, and and those thresholds do correlate with your ability to actually culture the virus out, which is just very tedious. That's why they use these tests. Um, they they do worse. They do worse, and they, and they're more heavily infected. Um, but the but the problem is, so if you test positive early, that's 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 a that's a concerning clinical sign. So at say you test positive at just twelve cycle thresholds, that's that's equivalent to about two billion copies of of this fragment, and that translates into a heavy viral load. Hmm. But if you if you test positive at forty, you have eight copies. That's equivalent. So someone visited your house two months ago, and you happen to find uh, a lingering hair on your couch. Oh wow! I mean, it's it's meaningless. And by the time you get above cycle thresholds of thirty, and certainly thirty-three or so, thirty-five, they can't culture any more virus. So you're getting basically the remnants of the virus in maybe sloughed off dead cells. Hmm. Um, but it's clinically, uh, even virologically, your ability to culture the virus. It's not meaningful. And so I think what, sorry, it's a long-winded way of saying, I think parents, myself, yourself, others that have students on campus, must demand, um, oh, God forbid, particularly if a kid tests positive. Uh, I haven't had that lovely experience yet. But if a kid tests positive, the parents must demand the cycle threshold at which they tested positive. It, It makes a huge difference. And and I think I think we need to start advocating for this publicly. That's interesting. I had not heard that broken down that way before, but that does make sense. And yet, how many parents would even know about cycle thresholds and what you said? This is such important information, but parents are just freaking out because a lot of these universities are just freaking out. 
Right. Well, I guess you know one way to sort of see it is like look for example at these healthy football players. You know, mostly, sure they're they're coming up with positives, it's disrupting the schedule, um, etc. But they're as far as I can see, I, I, I mean, I haven't. I, I, I'll be corrected if if, if, some, if something occurs, but they're all asymptomatic. Yeah. This is this is very similar to the overwhelming preponderance of what you're seeing on college campuses. I mean, a case, you know, there there is a subset that's having some some sort of mild flu-like symptoms, et cetera. It's you know certainly it's it's, it's possible, but the vast preponderance are asymptomatic positive, hmm. and you know it would be very important to see now that we understand the testing procedure. What are the cycle thresholds at which they're testing positive? I'm sure there's going to be an incredibly tight correlation with the high values. There'll be exceptions. There'll be exceptions in both directions. There always are. It's a test, after all. It's, it, you know, it's got its imperfections. But I'm, but, but I'm convinced that the reason we see, you know, all these positive tests, hardly any hospitalizations, is because, okay, how are they defi- if the positive test is defined up to a cycle threshold of 40, then I, I guarantee you they're getting a whole bunch of positives that are certainly above 30, but probably even above 35, where you, where you literally don't find culturable virus. Wow. Well, and this does make a difference because, as you mentioned, having kids in college yourself and we do as well, the, the stuff that's going on on some of these college campuses in terms of the draconianism, I'm, that's probably not even a word, but the draconian yeah. sort of uh, re- efforts that these universities are putting in to try to allegedly keep kids safe also backfires in that a lot of these kids aren't even going to class and it's really disrupted campus life across America. The question is, is it really necessary? And I want to dive into that in a little bit when we come back from this break. Dr. Andrew Boston with us talking about COVID-19 on college campuses. Should we really panic? We'll be back after this on Janet Meffer today. If you could provide God's word to a Bibleist believer elsewhere in the world, would you? Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send that Bible today. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere is found lacking, we're encouraged to help provide it. These believers live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of Christianity, and where Bibles are scarce. As Pastor Carlo in Peru says, they need the hope found only in God's word. Everyone wants to read the Bible but what happens there are a few copies here in the area many of them will uh, be sharing the single Bible for only five dollars believers around the world will receive Bibles and be discipled in their new faith thirty five dollars sends seven Bibles one hundred dollars sends twenty and because of a matching gift right now your gift will be doubled call 800 yes word 800 yesword 800 yes word or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. 
As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We're back, and there has been an awful lot of panic, especially going into the starting of the fall semester at college campuses across America, as well as K through 12. But we're talking a little bit about what's going on on the college campuses because my guest, Dr. Andrew Boston, epidemiologist and also a trained clinician, has been analyzing this data at 50 top universities and college campuses across America and found that there are almost no hospitalizations and no deaths, zero deaths. And this is interesting, Annie, because as you mentioned before, uh, we've got two children who are on college campuses at the moment. One One of our children has no in-person classes at all. And I'm thinking to myself, what are they doing? There's no, you know, overwhelming COVID-19, you know, uh, pandemic exploding on her college campus. What what do you make of the way that these campuses have dealt with COVID-19, given the data that's now coming out that it's probably not that necessary to be going to the lengths they're going to to allegedly keep kids safe? Well, look, they, 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 the, only, the only group on the campus that, that may be at increased risk, again, depending on the demographics, uh, are, are some of the professors, maybe, maybe some of the other staff at, at the hospitals. Uh, sorry, at the hospitals, at the, at the campuses. And, 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 and those are the people uh, who might merit some special consideration. You know, in the case of professors, maybe, maybe there, there would be, uh, you know, taking advantage more of the option of, of remote classes or laboratories where, where they were uh, really overseen by the, by, the, by the graduate assistants and things like that. There, there are all kinds of steps in between uh, that could be taken, but, but, but penalizing, uh, penalizing the students um, is is just is just awful and 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 unnecessary and alarmist and it creates this climate of fear and 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 lo and behold right in the middle of this you know one of the campuses that I've been following is Temple University and as of my last uh, check of their of their database you know all these all these uh, positives are put on so-called COVID nineteen dashboards there's a there's a certain amount of transparency about this it it, it is it is useful at least. Um, was was Temple University, and, the, and at the time I queried their database most recently, they had 488 positives. Well, at the same time as that, and no hospitalizations. <laughs> at the same time as that, I learned last weekend um, that that two girls uh, living off campus got drunk and fell off the roof of their four-story building, and and and, and they're hospitalized um, with 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 significant trauma, multiple <sighs> trauma. Wow. I, I mean, so, and every year we know that as a result of auto accidents or, or, or you know, horrible injuries like, like what I just described and worse, um, there's about 1,500 to 2,000 uh, kids on campuses that die from, from alcohol-related deaths. Right. 
Right. That's uh, true. From, from, from trauma, from motor vehicle accidents, et cetera. Um, and, you know, so <laughs> I, I, I mean, you know, we really have to get a grip and, and, and restore some sanity about this. Influenza, even seasonal influenza, is, is statistically uh, more dangerous to students in, the, to, to, in this age bracket. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and we're just not we're just not uh, we're just not really grappling with this appropriately now outside of the universities that i survey janet there have been there have been two deaths since the summer um at smaller universities um which have been uh, you know in the press attributed to coronavirus one was a uh, defensive tackle at a small university in pennsylvania called um university of california pennsylvania <laughs> his father was an nfl lineman this is jermaine's uh, Stevens Jr. was the was the was the student. Um, he he supposedly was COVID positive, but the only documentation that he died as a as a result of that is coming from the parents. There's been an autopsy. There's no release of medical findings. Um, so I'm not willing to say uh, un, unless the medical you know examiner is willing to say that this was a coronavirus death. And then at Appalachian State, there was a very there was a very healthy uh, kid who uh, again. Did, did get a did get a case of, of coronavirus, apparently had recovered from it, and then developed something a rapidly progressive paralysis called Guillain-Barré syndrome. Yeah. Now Guillain-Barré is one of these mysterious illnesses that's been associated with viruses. It's actually been associated with vaccines. It's been associated with autoimmune diseases. It's very hard to pin down its etiology under any circumstance. And there's also an association, by the way, with with influenza. Um, uh, and, and so, again, the neurologist who took care of him or was oversaw some of his care, uh, he's not willing to say that that's the reason that he died. It's because of a coronavirus infection. And yet, you know, he tested positive, and the New York Times ran with both those stories. They, they claimed that Jermaine Stevens, you know, died uh, as a result of coronavirus, and this, and this young man at, at, um, at Appalachian State University. I, I, until I see confirmation medically... Um, I, I haven't included them as 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 COVID-19 deaths, which is responsible, because unless you can absolutely confirm it, then you don't want to be inaccurate. So that makes it, sense, especially especially in the latter case at Appalachian State, where they where they, they in the story itself in the New York Times quoted the neurologist as, as saying that he wasn't you know, he wasn't convinced it was a result from coronavirus. Mm. And in the case of Jermaine Stevens, which is a, a, a particularly tragic thing, uh, you know, he he um, I mean, they both are. Uh, he, he, he was he was he was athletic, but he was morbidly obese. And there's other things that could potentially have contributed uh, to his death besides coronavirus. It does sound like he died from a pulmonary embolus. And again, it's it's plausible. It's possible that coronavirus can it does contribute. It appears to some thrombotic episodes. But it, you know, why hasn't the medical examiner? I mean, you know, in these sad cases, there's autopsies. Why haven't the autopsy findings confirmed? This 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 uh, this etiology, probably because they're they're not convinced. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so uh, uh, this, this is this is why this game of of of, of hysteria uh, is, is 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 very unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. 
Yeah, it is. Well, and let me ask you this, because according to the CDC, if you're between zero and 19 years old, you have a 99.997% survivability rate from COVID-19. If you're between ages 20 and 49, it goes down to 99.98% survivability rate. What does the actual data that you've looked at tell you about the proper response that you think colleges should be having when it comes to allowing students to attend class, wear masks, go to social functions? the distancing, all that stuff. What do you think is the correct thing? I mean, and it's not an exact thing, but just generally speaking, what do you think these colleges should be doing? I think it's very straightforward. Uh, Again, there there have to be differences for the, if there are elderly faculty, if there are faculty that are immunocompromised that are younger, you know, at risk, et cetera. And those, those risk groups we're becoming more familiar with. Something, something to, to alter their, their um, uh, exposure uh, sh- should be done. For the students, I go back to the guidelines that were issued by the CDC in 2009 with H1N1, with the swine flu epidemic, which was more dangerous to, to the student age bracket. Um, and there, the guidelines were very straightforward. Um, if, if, if you're sick, isolate yourself. If you're, if you're febrile, you know, you, you, sh- you probably should be wearing a mask. Uh, again, we have this limited evidence about the efficacy of masks. I don't want to get into that. But, but, but those were the kinds of guidelines. Self-isolation and quarantine of the sick. Yes. Not, 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 uh, you know, not restrictive regulations for the entire population of students. I mean, this, and that is the classical epidemiologic model. Right. You, 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 don't, you don't quarantine entire populations. You focus potentially on the at-risk and certainly those that are clinically ill. Yeah, but they keep going back to this asymptomatic argument. When you have all these kids who don't have symptoms, then we don't know who has it. We better mask everybody. What do you say to that? I, I, again, it, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. And, and even at times, you know, because we, we, the, the unfortunate thing is we've had someone like Anthony Fauci at the beginning uh, who, who is so contradictory in his messages. I mean, 180 degrees. Yeah. Masks don't work. Everyone should be masked. Uh, you know, go through the whole litany of, of, of contradictions. Um, one of the things he said early on, which is, which is true historically, is that asymptomatic persons never drive a respiratory epidemic or pandemic. It's driven by the symptomatic. And that makes sense in terms of the, of the, um, of the viral loads that we see in, in the, in the symptomatic uh, persons. And, you know, based on my ability to look at the literature, um, it it seems to apply to to COVID-19 too. Um, The the possible exception is sometimes people are what they call pre-symptomatic. You know, they're they're about to explode, uh, you know, particularly in nursing homes and and become, unfortunately, violently ill and dangerously ill. Um, But but they don't yet have symptoms that that's kind of different than the person that's, you know, like like uh, like the Patriots uh, all pro defensive back uh, uh, who just tested positive. Uh, and is completely asymptomatic, or Ezekiel uh, Elliott from the Cowboys. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that's very. Those people are truly asymptomatic. But but basically, it's the symptomatic people with the heavy viral loads that 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 drive these these respiratory pandemics. Uh, well, it is great news though to see among all these fifty colleges that you've been tracking that there are no deaths and almost no hospitalizations. I mean, five is not good, but five out of some seventy thousand positive cases is extremely good. And and a lot of parents and a lot of students are saying, "When are we going to get back to normal?" What do you think on that score? Oh, you know, 
I, I, it's, this is what disturbs me more than anything. You know, you're, you're starting to hear the drumbeat of, of voices, these, these authoritarian voices that, you know, we're saying never. No, <laughs> even, no. even or, or, or <laughs> even with a vaccine. Well, think about how a vaccine is for influenza. It's it's hardly perfect. No. I mean, you're still and no. there's always mismatches. You know, it depends which strain of flu is, is prevalent in a given year. They try and give you a polyvalent polyvalent vaccine to cover you know, pr- projected strains that will be circulating in that given year. And there's mismatches, you know, it, uh, so. I, I just saw something in The Lancet uh, about how, um, you know, they're looking to eradicate something which, frankly, I don't think you can eradicate. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we just have to you know, we just have to live with it and, and protect the most the most vulnerable and develop better therapeutics. Great. Well, th- we're going to have to leave it there. But Dr. Andrew Boston, we're so grateful for all your work, Andy. Thanks a lot for being with us. Thank you, Janet. You bet. Take care. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back with Columbus Day right around the corner. It's really, really disheartening to see all the attacks on his legacy continue in the public square. Boston's Christopher Columbus statue, which was beheaded back in June, you might recall, won't return back to Christopher Columbus Park. Instead, it is headed for a new home and an affordable housing development. And this was the same statue that was decapitated back in both 2006 and 2015 when it was sprayed with red paint and the words Black Lives Matter. What's more, Boston's Columbus statue is just one of many Columbus likenesses to come under attack this year. And my next guest traces the madness back to that socialist historian who rode to fame and fortune on that false narrative about Christopher Columbus, Howard Zinn, of course, the author of A People's History of the United States. So we're going to talk a little bit more about this today and the rotten fruit of Howard Zinn with Dr. Mary Graybar, resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization and author of the great book Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History that Turned a Generation Against America. And Dr. Graybar, great to have you back on the show. How are you doing? Good, good. Great to be back. Thank you. Thank you. What do you make of all these Columbus statues and likenesses being destroyed this year? I guess there are fewer and fewer as each year comes along, but especially this year. Yeah, this year was very unusual because, um, as I noted in my book, this is a ritual every year around Columbus Day. You know, more and more statues were defaced or, you know, sprayed with red paint. Um, but this year, right in the middle of summer in June and July, the, these statues were toppled, and this came right along after the Confederate statues, and then they went on to 
every icon of American history, including, um, you know, black soldiers who fought in the Civil War and abolitionists. I mean, it was just a crazy frenzy of the destruction of symbols of American history. It, it was like this madness had swept over the nation. And, of course, Christopher Columbus is right in the center of it. And so far, at least 33 statues have either been toppled or taken down as preemptive measures in the face of threats and uh, after, you know, they've been attacked with graffiti and so forth. Um, So it's, it's quite disturbing. We haven't seen anything like this ever. I mean, it's been getting worse and worse every year incrementally, but uh, this summer was just a frenzy of violence and hatred going back to the discoverer of America. Oh, I know. It's been really hard to watch. I, to what extent do you blame Howard Zinn for the madness? Because clearly he's the main guy who's been advancing this false narrative about Christopher Columbus. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, he was quite proud of that fact. I mean, there had been other uh, people bashing Columbus, namely uh, a man by the name of Hans Koning, who was one of his comrades in the anti-Vietnam War movement, and he wrote a book in 1976 for high school students, and Zinn largely plagiarized from that, although he never admitted it. I discovered it in, in <laughs> my research. Um, but he wrote to fame and fortune, uh, Howard Zinn did, after basically copying the first five and a half pages uh, of his book from Koning's book and popularized the idea that there's a long line of corruption beginning with Christopher Columbus going down to the colonists, to the founding fathers, uh, to all presidents down to the present. So it's this kind of capitalist poison that he presents. uh, And it all started with Christopher Columbus. And of course, that is the Marxist view of American history uh, that was promoted by Engels and uh, was taken up by the CPUSA chairman, William Z. Foster in 1951, who, whose book Zinn basically followed. So it's, it's the same old Marxist narrative, but Zinn jazzed it up and became a celebrity and a rich man while doing it. Good grief. While lifting other people's material. That's nice. I yeah. mean, <laughs> it's just unbelievable. And, and you know what's so aggravating about it? When I go back and I, I was rereading a little bit of what Howard Zinn has written about Columbus, and it just made my blood boil. But it, it, the thing that he tries to say is that Columbus was all obsessed with gold and he was cruel to these Indians when he came over to the New World. But Christopher Columbus's first concern, as you've pointed out, was for the freedom and the salvation of the Indians. How in the world did that get lost to so many Americans who should know that because we were taught about that, at least I was, when we were young children? Well, Zinn basically started the trend, and he pretended that he had uncovered the truth about Christopher Columbus through his extensive research. He did no such thing. You know, he copied, he quoted quite selectively, and, um, you know, to the contrary of what Howard Zinn says, 
Christopher Columbus uh, saw himself. Uh, he was the patron saint of travelers. He saw himself as spreading the gospel to all the natives. He even had one of the native boys uh, baptized along with a group of others and adopted him. And this boy accompanied him on his successive journeys. He had nothing but love for the natives, and he ordered his men to treat them with kindness and fairness. They did not always follow through. He could not always be there. He did not have 100% control of them. So abuses occurred. But contrary to what Zinn and other people say, Columbus never murdered any of them. He never raped them. He did not commit genocide. All those charges are completely false. Yeah, it's disgraceful that that's the narrative that has taken hold in so many young people's minds because it really is doing not just a disservice to Columbus's legacy as it really was, but also to all of America when we're seeing statues of Columbus being torn down. I mean, I can think of a lot of people in our society whose legacy legacy should be torn down, but not his. I mean, this is someone who truly is worthy of honor, isn't he, for, for from all of us? Yes, and actually he, he's he been honored since um, the Revolutionary War days. Uh, he, uh, you know, the anniversary was celebrated in 1792, beginning then. In 1892, um, the Italian-Americans were celebrating him. That's around the time there, when there was the largest mass lynching in U.S. history of it, it 11 Italians, um, they were discriminated against. I mean, they came over on steerage. Uh, they put their pennies together, their nickels and dimes and pennies, to erect these statues that grace our public squares and our parks. And, um, you know, the, this, they, were, they did not have an easy life coming here. So in Columbus, we have a symbol of American history and American unity going back to the pre-revolutionary days uh, to the Im- immigrants from, um, you know, southern Europe that came uh, at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. Uh, he is a symbol of pride, um, for, for a group that had once been oppressed. And yeah. it's really ironic that these social justice warriors are now attacking this symbol. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I mean, the whole goal of Zinn's book was revolution, wasn't it? Wasn't that what he talked about, that it, it was a way to get people to take power from within the institution? So Zinn would probably, you know, uh, maybe didn't predict all of this, but it certainly has got to be a, a great goal when your your goal is revolution. It seems like that's happening. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He would he would be very happy with what's going on today. I mean, if you read his book, the narrative is that, you know, reforms, uh, working through the system, voting, uh, petitioning, uh, holding meetings, electing officials, none of that works in our corrupt system as he portrays it. The only thing that comes close to getting any kind of reform is violence in the streets. He glorifies violence. He glorifies riots and martyrs. Um, 
And so that's what he was aiming for. He wanted to inspire violence in the streets. Well, you can check it out in Dr. Mary Grabar's book, Debunking Howard's Inn, and celebrate Columbus Day as Christopher Columbus deserved. Thank you so much, Dr. Grabar. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. For several years now, Syrians have been pouring into the country of Lebanon to seek refuge amid terrorism and civil war. Now the crisis in Lebanon has escalated in the aftermath of COVID-19, a crumbling economy, and a devastating explosion in Beirut. Yet the spiritual crisis in Lebanon is the most devastating crisis of all because many people there have still never heard anything about Jesus. That's why Heart for Lebanon is on the ground ministering to hurting refugee families in the South and the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, providing emergency supplies, Christian education, Bible studies, and worship gatherings for these refugee families. And the impact is incredible. Your investment of $116 will help two families impacted by the crisis in Lebanon to get emergency supplies that they need to survive during the next 60 days. But best of all, these families will hear the gospel of Jesus for the very first time. A gift of $58 is enough to help one family. Can you help? Call now, 888 888- Two four seven fifty four ninety nine. Kevin Sorbo of the hit films God's Not Dead and Let There Be Light gives his thoughts on the scourge of abortion. One of the greatest attacks in America was an attack perpetrated by our very own Supreme Court. Now, subsequent to that, there have been 70 million babies slugged in the wombs of their mothers. That is more than the entire population of Canada and Australia combined. And that's why Kevin Sorbo also supports preborn. I wanted to invite you to offer your full support for the ministry of Preborn and its leader, Dan Steiner. The team at Preborn is very focused and very successful at saving preborn babies from abortion. Will you join us in the cause for life? By letting a mother see her baby on ultrasound and hear the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. For $140, you can help save five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I don't know how you feel about this, but I find it quite interesting that Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, wants to form this 25th Amendment Congressional Commission to study the idea of removing President Trump from office. Isn't this the same party that is rejoicing over all of these polls coming out, showing Joe Biden ahead 14 points, 15 points? If you had that big a lead, wouldn't you just not bother with the guy you are convinced will be out of office very, very shortly? What are they worried about? I'll tell you what they're worried about. They're worried about a lot of things. I think they're very worried about their candidates, Joe Biden, for a lot of obvious reasons that we've discussed a lot. And also Kamala Harris, who had an extremely poor performance at her vice presidential debate this week with Vice President Mike Pence. They know this is a very weak ticket. So all of the focus has been on Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. What else can you say? It isn't as if you can really take Joe Biden on his own merits, you know, who's a plagiarist, who is in office for 47 years and really didn't do anything to solve any of these problems that he's now claiming he'll solve magically if you just elect him, including I'll finally tell you if I'm going to pack the Supreme Court once you elect me. 
Now, this is right out of the Nancy Pelosi playbook. You'll find out what's in Obamacare once we pass it. And they get away with this. I don't know how they get away with this with their base. I'll just leave that there. At any rate, when we're talking about the other big story that's come up this week, and that is the alleged kidnapping plot, Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan allegedly was the target of a plot to kidnap her and do all kinds of terrible things. And it turns out they're now trying to say this militia group that has been charged with these crimes by the FBI uh, are somehow Republicans. And because President Trump tweeted out Liberate Michigan back in April, that now there's this tie that Trump is calling for an insurrection. These people are so desperate. They're so desperate. And by the way, when you look at some of the videos that are coming out, it shows very, very clearly that this is an anarchist Group, So they're not Republicans, they're not Trump voters, so far as we know. But you do have a left that's out of control. Why? Why is the left out of control? I would argue, basically, when it comes right down to it this week, it's because the Trump administration is closing in on the deep state. They are closing in on the Democrat Party in a very serious way. And I alluded to this yesterday. We haven't had time to talk about it in great detail, but I want to cover it a little bit today because it's important for you to know about. There are very few people in the mainstream media. Fox obviously has been covering this, but there are very, very few people in the secular news media who will touch this with a 10 foot pole and give it the treatment it deserves. And I'm talking about the declassification of these handwritten notes from John Brennan. Absolutely horrible. As Sean Davis writes at The Federalist, these top U.S. intelligence officials were so concerned heading into the 2016 election that the Russians were aware of and potentially manipulating Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton's plans to smear Donald Trump as a Russian agent that they personally briefed President Barack Obama on the matter. And this is all according to this newly declassified CIA documentation. CIA officials also requested that the FBI investigate Russian knowledge of the Clinton campaign's collusion smear operation. This really happened. It really happened. And it's really something that we have to deal with as Americans. The, the one and only issue that I would love to hear addressed if we do end up having another presidential debate is this issue. How was it that the Democrat Party did this And they went after a duly elected president with a deceptive narrative and Hillary Clinton was behind it and Obama knew about it. And you can be pretty well sure that if Obama knew about it, so did the Democrat nominee for president this year. And it needs to be probed to the bottom level of what actually happened. And there needs to be justice or the rule of law means nothing. And that is another reason why I believe it is so vital that the boiling over pot that the Democrats would love to see just blown sky high in terms of getting Trump out at all costs should not be allowed to happen from a justice perspective, because I I am just not convinced, nor do I think many people are convinced that justice will ever be served against these people. If they get into office, it's going to be over. So you can talk about issues and you can talk about this and that and this guy did this and this guy did that 
but from a very nonpartisan point of view pertaining to the rule of law, this thing is huge. This is probably the biggest story about the American government, at least in my lifetime, and probably yours as well. But let's go over here, because on Fox, Steve Ducey over at Fox had talked to Senator Tom Cotton about this story, asking, hey, wait a minute, if Obama knew about this, what did Joe Biden know? And this is what Senator Cotton said. This is cut one. I think you have to assume that Joe Biden knew and was in on this from the very beginning. I understand that John Brennan is upset over being exposed, but his handwritten notes from the summer of 2016 really confirm what common sense has told us all along. The only candidate and the only campaign to use foreign disinformation in 2016 was Hillary Clinton. She hired a foreign spy who had sources in Russia, probably Russian intelligence officers themselves, to dig up dirt on Donald Trump and then to spread it around the American media. Of course, the Kremlin would have gotten wind of that effort by Christopher Steele, a former British spy, to try to identify that information. And of course, they were trying to use that as a way to inject their own disinformation into the American political debate. The person in the campaign responsible for that is Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. Barack Obama, Obama knew about it as early as the summer of 2016. I think it's safe to say that Joe Biden knew about it as well. Pretty big story, don't you think? Didn't even come up. Didn't even come up this week at the vice presidential debate. Not even an issue. Let's just not talk about it. And wouldn't it be interesting if because President Trump does not want to appear at a virtual debate, putting him at a severe disadvantage when you have these kinds of moderators and this kind of hostile media culture where they want to cut him off. He didn't want to do a virtual debate. So he says, well, let's reschedule the debates. The Biden campaign says no, and he doesn't get to determine when the debates are. Hey, listen, if you guys are so concerned about coronavirus, why don't you just go along with it and say out of an abundance of caution and out of a concern for the other candidates health? Sure, of course, we'll delay it a week. They don't want to do a debate. Are you kidding me? They don't want to do a debate. They've never wanted Joe Biden to debate. He's horrible in the debates. Why would they want to do that? So if you don't have the debates, you also don't have to talk about this issue, do you? And that makes it very interesting. What is this all grounded in? Brian Kilmeade explains. Listen to cut two. John Brennan is verbally briefing the president of the United States about a plan that would tie then-candidate Donald Trump to Russia as a means of distracting the public from her use of a private email server. This is not an opinion. John Brennan's words his writings, longhand. So John Brennan does not deny this is him and said this in explanation. Tell me if this makes it better. If, in fact, what the Russians were alleging, that Hillary was trying to highlight the reported uh, connections between Trump and the Russians, if, in fact, that was accurate, and that's a big if, there is nothing at all illegal about that. And so John Radcliffe and others are trying to portray this as potentially unlawful activity that deserved follow-up investigation by the FBI. No, it was a campaign activity. You just heard him say nothing wrong about that as a distraction from her email scandal. Nothing wrong about that, Senator. Remember, it's not John Ratcliffe that made this FBI referral. He simply declassified an FBI referral that was contemporaneous, apparently, 
to John Brennan's briefing of the president and his handwritten notes. There was enough concern at the time to do so. And again, we don't need to have these notes alone to verify this. Just go back and look at the tape. Throughout the summer and fall of 2016, Hillary Clinton and the Democrats were accusing Donald Trump and his campaign of colluding with the Russians. We now know that that collusion ho hoax was false and that it was Hillary Clinton and the Democrats who are actually colluding with foreign intelligence and Senator, officers. Just That's right. And, and Ratcliffe, as the Federalist points out, declassified as well portions of this formal CIA investigative referral that was sent in September of 2016 to ex-FBI Director James Comey and also Peter Strzok, asking them to investigate the Clinton's campaign and this whole issue of the anti-Trump collusion smear operation, uh, Strzok and Comey refused to initiate an investigation. And then Comey, when he was questioned, said, I don't remember that at all. These people are slimy and there needs to be full justice brought to bear on these people who are just drunk with power and don't care at all how they get it. Thank you so much for being with us. God bless you. And we will see you next time. Lord willing, here on Janet Meffer today.